I think all of this and where we are today is not necessarily the result of evil people trying to do evil things. I, I think there are good people with good intentions, but then I do believe where we are today is leading to potentially bad outcomes. Welcome back everybody to Building Better Games. Today we're gonna to dig into the nuance around game company culture and what you need to be thinking about as a leader in this space. Why does it seem that the direction we're moving with studio culture is that there's one right answer? What are the consequences, perhaps unintended, of some of the pushes we're seeing culturally in the industry today? What are some of the key lessons or truths that leaders are missing in the mainstream today? And finally, it seems like so much of the discussion around culture and games today is devoid of nuance. Why is that? Fortunately, we're lucky to have Joseph Kim with us today to dig into this. Joseph is a longtime game maker and experienced executive who has been a part of huge studios like Sega and small startups alike. He's currently working with Leela Games in India, building a brand new product in an up and coming environment. Joseph, welcome. And we're super stoked to have you here, man. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here as well. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So, you know, again, the, the first thing that popped up in my head is devoid of nuance, because I'm really curious to go deep on some of these points with you. Sure. Ben posted this little thing on LinkedIn about remote work, and his post was pretty benign. It was basically like, hey, guys, there might be some downsides to this. And he just got like eviscerated. Someone had posted something like, you know, obviously remote work is great for a lot of people and it's clearly the way of the future. And if you're on LinkedIn, you've seen a lot of these. And I kind of said like, hey, I remote work. I enjoy it. I like it. It has downsides. Like we should keep that in mind. I didn't go into a ton of nuance around it, but I just tried to say like, we should take the downside seriously. And as leaders really think about how do we set up a successful environment? And some people actually were just like, hmm, that was thoughtful. But today I think I was accused of being a lonely person who doesn't know how to do my job. And who thinks uh, remote work is terribly flawed as a result of that. And I'm like, there's a chord being struck here, I think, with a lot of people that is like, I, they don't even want the conversation that like this might have its drawbacks. I've been experiencing something similar where, for example, one of the things that we do at Leela Games is, you know, we have a number of documents that really tries to present our company in as honest and as realistic of a way as possible. And so we're very clear from the very beginning that, you know, we don't believe in some things like work-life balance, not for everybody, but for us. And the kind of really emotional reactions that I get, including some very hateful messages without even looking through our documents, right? They just look at the headline or they look at the, the title and they're like, you know, fuck you. And by the way, I think all of this and where we are today is not necessarily the result of evil people trying to do evil things. I, I think sure. there are good people with good intentions, <laughs> but then I do believe where we are today is leading to potentially bad outcomes. But yeah. maybe I could actually start the conversation with a philosophy that I believe in, which really has to do with what I believe is like a kind of characteristic of life existence in reality around this concept of duality, right? And I think that when we think about this notion of duality, this is something that has existed from ancient times, from the concept of, let's call it yin versus yang, which is basically uh -huh. mind versus body, physical versus spiritual, 
internal versus external. But I believe like this fundamental notion of duality exists all throughout human nature, technology, physics. When you think about concepts such as reductionism versus holism, the particle versus the wave, client versus server, left versus right, centralized versus decentralized. I think that if any of you or anyone in the audience thinks about it, you can come up with some really good examples of duality that just exists in life. Uh. And some of these dualities also exist in the workplace. Things like work-life balance versus work-life integration, management versus employees, cruelty versus compassion, let's call it, you know, plan processes versus kind of unstructured work, formality versus informality. Like you can go on and on with these kinds of dualities that exist in life and in the workplace. Yeah. And there, there's actually a duality to duality. And what I mean by that is that there is a notion of duality as a zero-sum game, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. That you're either on one side or the other. Yeah. If you support work-life integration or a hard work ethic, then that's viewed as an attack on my ability to have work-life balance. And so then there is this perspective around viewing this duality as a zero-sum game versus kind of like the James Cars concept of an infinite game. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Where everyone can win. Yeah. And, you know, I often use the analogy when I try to explain what we're doing at Leela Games, which is different. It's not work-life balance. We've got a lot of people in an early game development ecosystem, many of whom don't have the skills to do what we need to do. But like, so we've got a different situation, but like what I'm trying to say is why can't there be more? Why does there have to only be the one model? I often liken it to different flavors of ice cream. I wish we could live in a world where there is vanilla ice cream, there's mint chocolate chip, there's chocolate, there's raspberry, strawberry, uh-huh. and there are different companies that support different models. And that let people choose for my situation, for my objective in life, I choose work-life balance. Or I choose to try and learn and develop and gain a lot of opportunities at this other company because I want to try to become the best or I want to try to learn a lot. And so maybe there's vanilla, but then if you like vanilla, can you not hate on people that want chocolate? (laughs) You know, it's just like... You know, it's so funny because I've heard you in other mediums bring up the ice cream flavor analogy before, and I love it. Yeah. Because, like, I think to take the conversation away from this very, I love how you said it, zero sum, which zero sum feels like the walls are closing in on me. Like, you better yes. pick the right option or the right side or else we're all going to get crushed. And in theory, we have all of the capabilities to create as many flavors as there are preferences that people could possibly have. And what a wonderful world where everyone can have the right ice cream for them. You know, like I think that, that, you know, it all of a sudden you change that conversation away from that zero sum game to like this much more inspirational, much more open, much more positive world where it's like, well, maybe I don't want to be at a studio that works, you know, whatever hours. Maybe I want to work at a studio where we do like whatever the four hour work week or whatever. And we <laughs> we figured out a way to make that work. And, and we love it. And that's how we roll. But then I know these other folks over here are working 12 hour days or whatever. And and I don't feel threatened by that. I think it is like really worth sort of like raising this conversation out and like putting that mirror up yeah. for everybody. Yeah, I think you're, you're right, Aaron. And I also think that the societal context that kind of 
impacts this has to do also with this notion of personal empowerment, which has led uh -huh. to kind of like this self-centered, you mentioned the four-hour work yeah. week. Uh, so there's, there's like this philosophy that at least in, you know, the Western world is starting to popularize around, you know, how do you maximize you, yeah. you yourself? And it's, it's almost like this very self-centered, how do you maximize everything for yourself and viewing yeah. like your employer as almost like an enemy or like, you know, what can you get from them for yourself? How do you maximize yes. yourself? And on top of that, we've got, you know, the proliferation of social media and like this yeah. comparison culture. Oh, you know, looking at Instagram and you're looking at all these other people. And then it's not so much about what's going to make you happy. It's like, how do I, how am I not only happy, but how am I better than, than all these other people on social media who are presenting their lives in this kind of idyllic way? Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it just leads to unhappiness, right? And so we've got all of these things happening societal, political, macroeconomic, and all of these things, I think it would be naive to say that they don't pervade into the work environment. Let's talk about that because I think it's obvious that all of the stuff we're talking about has a major impact on work culture in America. But as I think technology, I include the games industry as part of that, are more on the bleeding edge, I think, when it comes to cultural norms and sort of modern working methods, whatever that means. You know, so like not to go too down the remote work rabbit hole, but it's it's interesting context to sort of understand why we're these conversations are so intense in our industry right now. I do think that sometimes when some of the people who argue for remote work and against uh, working in the office place, I do think that it comes from it comes from a certain place where these people are working in certain environments and then they extrapolate that environment to everybody else. Yeah, yeah. The historical context of where we got today in terms of like the workplace environment had to do with, at least from a Silicon Valley context, is there started to become a talent war, right? Where especially, you know, Facebook, Google, companies like this, and then they started to add a lot of benefits and they started to think about paying people not on a linear scale, but more towards like, you know, value and things like that. And then against that backdrop, we're from a technology perspective, we have been moving towards a world in which there are massively scaled businesses. And what does that mean? That means that you actually don't need that many people to operate some of these businesses that you typically would have thought in, you know, when we were a manufacturing era, for example. And so, you know, when you're working at Google with a scaled search business or, you know, Riot with a game that just prints money, right? That has led to the ability to like pay people. And there are people that work at these companies who are like, oh yeah, you know what? They're taking high comp, work-life balance, all these things as a given. And then they're extrapolating that to like, you guys obviously should be doing the same thing. Obviously, any company can do that as they're sitting on like a scaled monopolistic business, right? Yeah. And this goes all the way back to what we're talking about, right? Nuance, understanding the nuance, understanding the situational context. Yeah. And from there, then can you like, can you as an employee of, of, of a company, please try and understand the situation of the company or the person that you're attacking, right? But try to understand their context too, because I think if you just read the headline and if you just say, oh, you're against remote work, fuck you. You're against 
work-life balance, fuck you. That it's creating that zero-sum world, in, in my opinion. But like if you watch the prevailing narrative, like on social media and what people are talking about, there is this like class war or perceived class war between the management class and the worker class, which I find fascinating because again, it, a lot of it is within this like, for lack of a better phrase, ivory tower of technology where a lot of this conversation is happening. And when remote work started to really come into full swing during the pandemic, I heard a lot of this in the games industry where it was like, well, our producer seems to be having a hard time finding out how to add value. You hear these narratives all over. That shocks me because I, when I look at studios who are highly effective versus studios who are not, leadership is actually one of the big things that comes up for me consistently. So I'm curious what you think about that, because I, I see, again, duality, that management versus worker. Yeah. And I actually think there's truth to some degree on both sides where yeah. I do feel that I am, to some degree, disappointed by a lot of leaders, but then to then, you know, condemn all leaders for that and say that they're useless, I, I think is also that. I think that I'm disappointed probably by leadership because I feel like the things that we've been talking about, right, whether it's nuance and situational context and then trying to run a team or a business or a product against specific objectives, that's been a little bit muddled. And there's a little bit too little differentiation between operating as a leader on a scale business in which I do think a lot of leaders take too much credit and they don't really do that much because you're already sitting on a skilled business that has achieved product market fit to scale and things of that nature. I do think when it comes to scaled businesses, there's a lot of economics, right? Like think about it today. We've got, you know, I'm in the mobile gaming industry. It, that's a billion person plus platform. Yeah. Like with one product, you can address billions of people. And so if you achieve scale, then there's a lot of economics. Now, how should you split up that pie, right? And how responsible is a specific leader, especially for a product where somebody else did the work, found product market fit and scaled it, you know, how do you divvy that up? And where I'm a little bit disappointed in a lot of leaders who basically are some of the bad guys, right? Where they don't lead by example. They yeah. say, hey, you guys need to work. You guys need to do all this. And by the way, like I am a proponent of a hard work ethic. But when a leader forces their team to overwork and says, hey, guys, thanks for all your hard work. By the way, I'm going on my two-week vacation. I'm going to be back from Hawaii like... But you yeah. guys, make make sure you work really hard, right? So I do think there's a balance there. I would hope that more leaders are leaders that think about this more thoughtfully and who are more fair, who think about their employees, who think about their situational context. And, and I think that's something that I'm trying to do. I'm not sure if I'm incredibly successful at it, but I can say at the very least at my company, I work the most, the hardest. We've got employees at our company who have more equity than many co-founders of other Indian game studios. And so like we try to think about these things and be fair, but I do think that that is an issue. Yeah. So like on a high level, kind of if leaders thought more deeply about what are you trying to do, meaning your objectives, and then what do you do given your situational context, right? Yeah. And I think too often leaders today are just thinking based upon the community, looking at other companies. What did I do in the past? Yeah. 
which may or not, may not be the same situation. Yeah, very much to your point. Ben and I, like when we're teaching lion producers, for example, to level up their skill set, one of the first uh -huh. concepts we introduce is like, okay, let's talk about management and leadership and how these are two different things. And those that basket of skills and thought processes you just articulated is very much in the bucket of leadership to us, where it's like, how are you driving your organization forward towards positive outcomes? Right. Whereas like management is, it's a useful skill set, but it's more of a skill set around optimizing and maintaining an existing right. system. And actually you struck a huge light bulb in my head when you talked about scaled organizations who already have product market fit. That's where you get the sort of more occurrence of the generic manager, right? Like, how do I keep this machine running? Before I forget, just to like open up the can of worms a little bit, Aaron, on, on your comment about managers, there's been kind of within the last 10 years, kind of this shift towards like the importance of feelings in a company. If I ask somebody who's a great manager, then you run the five whys. Why? Yeah. And it often comes out that it's like, well, they treated me the best. Not they taught me the best, not that they pushed me the most, not any of those other things, which would, I would say would have been different if you asked somebody that same question in 1990 during their early days of Silicon Valley. But I do think that that's also something that has kind of changed. And this, this notion of a manager, what should a manager do? What makes a good manager? And today I think it's increasingly who makes me feel safe yeah. and feel good. As we've consulted with various game studios over the last couple of years, historically, it seemed like somewhat of an outlier for a company to have completely institutionalized in its culture, like a kindness uh -huh. and a sort of like an equitability when it comes to feelings. And now it's so commonplace that we actually find that one of the value adds we can give is to counterbalance that a bit by, by reflecting, for example, hey, nobody really gives any critical feedback here at all. Because, because to your point, the most valuable thing in your culture is actually being nice and not hurting someone's feelings. Yes. But here's the problem, though. Everyone knows Jim is underperforming. Sorry if your name's Jim. I just created that <laughs> name out of thin air. But everyone knows Jim's underperforming and no one has the heart to tell him. Right. And so it creates a different kind of unkindness. Or like everyone just pretends that Jim's underperformance isn't an issue and they just build resentment. Yeah. So it's, it doesn't actually solve anything. But like we see that all the time now. It's like one of the prevailing issues we run into. The common thinking today in a company is to be nice, to not hurt someone's feelings. And so, you know, one of the questions I ask people is like, what would you rather have? Would you rather have someone who's nice to you and says, you're doing great, then all of a sudden you get fired just like that with no feedback? Or would you rather have someone give you direct feedback, talk to you about how you can improve, and then you have a chance to improve and not get fired? And, and I think that's kind of what we're dealing with today is, again, this, um, it's one of the dualities that I mentioned that I think is emerging, basically the duality of compassion versus cruelty. Yeah. And I, I do think, though, that the other nuance to that is that if you're operating a scaled business, it almost doesn't matter what your individual impact is, right? It's so tiny. Right. And so to some degree, in a scaled business, it doesn't matter. And maybe that's the better 
not that I agree with it because I, I personally believe in, in more direct feedback, but in a scaled business, you know, maybe that's the better way to operate depending on your, your business. But I will say in a zero to one business, in a business where, you know, you're a startup, your cash is burning, you can't have that. And so again, it kind of goes back to these people who are working in a specific context. And I'm not saying they're poorly intentioned. They have good intentions, but they're just looking at their life, working at Google or Facebook or, or Riot. Eight. Sorry. <laughs> and then they're like, this is how I live. Everyone should have that. Yeah. Right. right. And so it's it's not coming from like a, a place of bad intentions. It's coming from good intentions. But I do think like, the blanket application of their situation to everyone else, to a startup, maybe to a startup in India where you don't have anyone who has the proper skills and we're trying to train people and change their lives, then it's like, okay, maybe what you believe doesn't apply to everyone. I respect you for your vanilla ice cream. Can you respect me for liking chocolate, please? Yeah. Well, and see that, that again, that's that nuance, right? And to lack nuance is to simplify or reduce the world, right? And there, that simplification has really practical purposes. If you're in a company and there's a problem that you encounter and you know that this company with its context has solved this problem 17 times before, and you can look at those solutions and be like, well, these ones seem to work the best. It simplifies your world in a very helpful way. This is management, right? Like there's rules, there's guidelines, there's processes that we follow. They keep us on the the road and out of the ditches as yep. we go through our life. And what you're pointing out, I think quite eloquently, is that the problem may appear to be the same, but the context means that the solution may be very different. Because if I'm at Google or, you know, Amazon or Blizzard or Riot or like, again, with a just a steady, continuous, like I'm we're printing money, we're not worried about that. That's not a major concern of ours. Perhaps the solution that you chose was very expensive. And if I'm going zero to one on venture capital and I've only got my seed round and I see that problem, like if you're Google, you're like, well, hire a team to solve it. And I'm like, there's three of us. I can't hire a team to solve the problem of like, you know, let's say CICD or automated test frameworks or something like that. That's not a viable solution. What do I do instead? How do I use the, my resources and my circumstances, the people around me? And sometimes the answer to that is work harder. It's a dangerous place to be. Most of these fail. Aaron and my best numbers we could find was that 95% of games that enter production fail. That's the enter production, not that even start. And it's they fail to become profitable. So maybe they ship, but they don't make any money or whatever it is. Like you're in this world where you're more likely to fail than to succeed statistically. One of the ways to maximize your ability to survive is to be highly attentive, to be innovative, to be creative, to work really hard to do the things that nobody else is doing maybe that might help you succeed, but you don't know what those are and they're often time consuming and you're learning a million new skills and that's exhausting and you're going to feel bummed and you're going to feel anxiety around the survival of the company. Like it's a different world. I think that the other thing with that is that it's often painted in a very negative light, right? So I, I think there's both a positive and a negative, but when people think about working at a startup and then they, they think about all the work they have to do and all of the things that, you know, they have to sacrifice or give up. I do think that it also ignores the positive, right? Because for some people who love their craft and who would love the opportunity to be able to take on additional responsibilities, responsibilities that Facebook or Google or Zynga or a bigger game studio aren't going to give them and they get to learn, they get to, yeah. you know, James Clare often talks about, you know, have to versus get to, 
Yeah. And like all of the potential upward mobility that comes from the experience that you gain from a startup. So, you know, I, I would also just for your audience, when you're thinking about, you know, those evil people at the startup that are forcing their employees to work that much, I would say a lot of the folks, you know, at my company, I've got guys who tell me I will never leave because they realize that, you know, when they started and they saw their salary at this level and then it jumps up and like, well, you have learned a lot. You deserve your promotion. And, yep. you know, I, I have guys who high school grad who nobody would hire. We hired him one year later, you know, he left and now he's sent me at least 20, maybe 30 messages like, thank you for changing my life. Without you, I would have never been able to get these opportunities. And it's like, just can you guys please have a little bit more of an open mind Yeah, and not like hate on me? Because if you see some of the impact that we've had on people's lives, I think you'd be more supportive or some of these people would be. Oh man, I feel that inside. And it's what you said to me is so powerful because I personally, I was lucky that early on in my career, I had bosses like you, uh, leaders like you. And I remember when I first got so excited to get my unpaid internship at Riot, how much gratitude I had. I felt lucky to be there. And I still to this day look back and be like, I would not be the person I am. And I certainly would not be the leader I am without that opportunity. And I still look at those guys who gave me that opportunity. And I'm just so thankful. That's all I feel is just, it's just gratitude. It makes me feel really good that you're out there doing that too, because trying um, to. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> we're yeah, trying. <laughs> of course. And and by the way, those guys, when I bring it up to them, they say the same thing. And I appreciate their their humility as well. You know, there's a leadership lesson in everything you were all just talking about too. And I think that that's why in a startup world, you really like I see more instances of true leadership is because you really have to be nimble and adaptive. And you have to be able to fill in the gap between your tools and technology you have access to and the results that you want to get. Sometimes you have to fill in that gap with hard work, right? And I have an interesting anecdote. I remember about 2015, 2016, when Riot started to scale to the point where people that were there for a long time started going, what would it be like to bring my skills elsewhere? Like, I've only ever been at Riot. What might it be like to work at another game company? And there was a general fear within production that Riot producers would never be able to work anywhere else. And what was interesting is because we didn't know all the sort of standardized production techniques that other game companies used, there was this fear like, well, but all I've been doing is just sort of this weird kind of obtuse sort of leadership stuff. And yeah, I get it. I have all this accountability and humility and institutionalized culture, but I don't know how to do all the normal production stuff that other companies do. So there's no way they're going to hire me. And, you know, fast forward the clock, you know, seven years later now, I feel like Riot producers are among the most imminently hireable producers in the industry. And it's without a lot of those like base level tools. And it, I think it really goes back to your point there, Joseph, which is like, it's that leadership, it's situational context, nuanced thinking, like ability to adapt, like deep internalized sense of responsibility, grit. grit, like all this stuff. So on the leadership front, as we look at game dev overall, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Where's it going? Well, I would say if things continue as they have been going, and if we don't turn around this notion of being more open-minded about different perspectives, different ways of operating, different points of view, then I do think that 
the consequence of that would be the inability for certain kinds of companies to exist, where if the narrative is, this is the way you must operate your company, then it does become difficult. And I, I will say like, look, like starting a game studio is tough. Just speaking from my own personal experience, right? And starting it in India is even tougher. I consider myself to be extremely determined, right? But I do think that there are going to be some people who are discouraged from creating the kinds of companies in different ways that may ultimately wind up to be successful. I also think that when we think about our youth and people earlier in their careers, and if they are, you know, being taught the one way, then it will only prepare them for a certain type of environment, right? And this kind of environment of excess of operating and scaled businesses and things like that. And I also think that, you know, one of the main reasons why I started uh, Lila is to try and provide opportunity. That in India, I believe that there are, you know, and it's this going to be rare, but there are some people who want to learn, who don't have the traditional background, but they're looking for a company. Where can I join to become the best, to give me an opportunity so that I can, you know, 10, 15, 20x my compensation, my learning, my, you know, all that sort of thing. Where else are they going to go? I mean, you know, not to take too much credit, but like we've had a few instances and we've had people at our company who are telling us that we're being successful against that objective. So I think there would be a lack of opportunity if, if more companies just give up and don't try to do that. And then I think maybe finally, I think there would be a shift, at least in the kind of countries in which this kind of thinking and this kind of movement exists towards incremental improvement, right? Where there would be a lack of innovation, lack of risk-taking. If the way forward is remote work, work-life balance, and making sure everyone feels great, then how are we going to get the next big company that tries to do something incredible? Right. And I, and I do think that one of the things that I have noticed throughout my career and, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be in games publishing, like the companies that work the hardest seem to somehow figure it out. The ones that care the most, that work the hardest. And it may not necessarily be the, the, the teams with the most, most um, skilled people, although that does help. But I do think that that's a factor. And so I think like the the trends that we're starting to see, as we've already mentioned, if that pervades a workplace too much more and if we head in the direction that we're heading, I do think that these are like some of the things that I've talked about, those would be potential consequences of that. I liked what you said at the last part of there's long-term consequences in, our, in terms of potential reduction of innovation as people optimize for highest dollar plus all the perks I can get. But I think long-term if you do diminish the innovative output and it it's now more on the responsibility of the scaled organizations to create the new products, you are going to see more of the same and that will actually create an environment that is ripe for innovation. That is ripe for a company that is willing to do it differently to come in, be small, not take all the standard answers and actually like really make a big move because that's what's so common. I remember I was in a call with somebody or a conversation with somebody and they were talking, we were talking about Ubisoft and they were saying that Ubisoft as a company has a relatively low revenue per developer compared to a lot of the major studios. And their conclusion from that was so like they just haven't hit the big game yet. But when they hit it, man, they're going to be up there with the other companies. And I 
responded, I, I disagreed. I said, I don't think that's true. And I think the reason it's not true is because Ubisoft and many of these other scaled companies, I don't mean to pick on them, they were just that, to be the topic of the conversation. They've established processes and guidelines and everything around how they work that dictates this is how we operate. And what they probably don't realize is that, that a lot of those things that they've put in place do not support their efforts to attempt to create innovative new products that'll blow the top off of a totally new gaming market. They're yeah. more likely to create more of what they've already created. We will see opportunities for small companies because if we drift in the direction and it does reduce innovation, that's going to leave opportunity and people will dive into it. Yeah, Ben, a couple of follow-up points on your comments. I, I think to the point on you know, Ubisoft or like, I, I think just the larger organization, I, I do think that people, I hope they realize that there's this notion of, you know, at a larger company, stability is more important than impact, right? Because you're, you're scaled and things of that nature. But at a startup, impact is more important than stability. And it's, it's a different environment. I would say that like, even for me, like it's very beneficial to operate in an environment where I have limits, right? Where we're running out of money. I don't break even on the salary that I'm paying myself. When I watch my bank balance go down every month, when I think about, man, <laughs> the sacrifice that I'm making for my family, then all of a sudden, you know, those difficult conversations that I have to have with, with employees, with my co-founders, I'm going to have them because <laughs> the stakes are yeah. really, really high and I don't want to have them. I'm better for having them. And, you know, just to be clear, I love my co-founders. I love the employees that, that I work with, but you know, there are some things that you're forced to do because of the environmental factors that are at work in a startup context versus a large scale operating yeah. business context. And then I think the second point I wanted to make is like the point about, you know, working for meaning. Actually, the whole reason why, why I wanted to start this company, Leela, is for that reason. And in particular, Clayton Christian, who's a Harvard Business School professor, wrote an essay on how will you measure your life, which had a profound impact on, on me and how I viewed what I wanted to do, right? And like, basically, Clayton Christensen in that essay talks about how he went to a Harvard Business School reunion and he noticed that, you know, whatever it was, 15, 20 years later, that a lot of his Harvard Business School classmates had achieved a lot of material success, you know, the heads of hedge funds or law firms and things of that nature, but many of them were unhappy. And Clayton Christensen at that time was also dealing with, um, a, you know, he was diagnosed with cancer and he was thinking about, you know, when he's on his deathbed, looking back on his life, how would he think about, you know, what made his life meaningful? And I did the same thing. You know, I thought about, well, is more money, is work-life balance, is, you know, is that going to make me feel good about my life or something else? And so I guess like for your audience, and I think for some of these people who are thinking about why do people do that or, or why are people choosing to live or to do things in a specific way, I hope they take the time to understand that nuance as well. I want to actually 
continue that because you you have such a deep and broad experience in this industry and you have the like you have so many experiences battle scars to have done this step ladder of evolution of yourself what advice would you give for this sort of like emerging group of games industry leaders that might help them better themselves or increase their capabilities as leaders? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally some of the things that we talked about, right, which is like um, trying to have a liberal perspective, being open to other points of view, trying to put yourself in other people's shoes and then understanding the nuance and situational context as, as we had talked about. But then also based upon that is we discussed, be clear on what are your objectives? What are we trying to do? And then how do we design against those objectives given what you have, what you're trying to do, and then so on and so forth. And so I think those would be the things. And then just really try to understand things deeply, kind of like the, the Elon Musk. I mean, I agree with everything he says or does, but I do think that his notion of first principles thinking and trying to really understand things at a very deep fundamental level is an important lesson, regardless of what you think about him personally. I personally feel like the, the thing that a lot of the young people today are discounting is opportunity. It's like Warren Buffett said that if he were to go back in time, the first year that he worked under Benjamin Graham, he said he shouldn't have been paid anything. Yeah, and he didn't yeah. even ask what his salary was yeah. but because he learned so much that that opportunity was actually super valuable. And I think right now with the current you know, societal place that we're in right now, a lot of people are discounting the, you know, the benefit of opportunity to almost zero. Well, Joseph, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Such a pleasure having you on. I knew it would be, but it was even better than I expected. So thanks for having me on. And as we close up, we're going to kind of summarize with some of the key points that came up in our discussion today. Things you can take away as a leader from this conversation. The first one is understand duality and how it's impacting leadership, the industry, and the world right now. Duality, as Joseph mentioned, is a prevalent concept in, in just the human experience, and it's always present. So keep it in the back of your mind. It can be very helpful. Second one is recognize that there are many different ways to approach work, and it's okay that different people prefer different approaches. Ice cream flavors, the more the better, right? Number three, be aware of your situational context, respect nuance, don't oversimplify everything, and keep an open mind towards different perspectives. Number four, always design your process, operations, organization, whatever it is that you have to do as a leader around your objectives, and think carefully about what those objectives are. Number five, be careful about falling into the trap of zero-sum thinking and include abundance and gratitude in your daily approach as a leader. Number six, we can find ourselves thinking a lot and spending a lot of effort on things like how much are we being compensated? What's our title? How do we sort of go through the standard linear career progression? But take a step back and think about meaning and what role meaning plays in your life and what the personal side of that is, what the career side of that is, and make sure to like really spend some time reflecting and considering how to bring the maximum amount of meaning into your life because one day you will likely be confronted with that if you haven't already and getting ahead of it could be a really, really powerful tool for you as you move forward. Okay, Joseph, what's your call to action? Anything you wanna to say to those that are listening? I do have a game dev 
newsletter. It's uh, gamemakers.substack.com. So if anyone is interested in hearing from me, I'm not always serious. Sometimes I'm uh, <laughs> I'm kind of, uh, as my wife would say, very cringy. So if you want to get a little bit of taste of that, feel free to sign up for, for my newsletter. Fantastic. Hey, if this episode helped you in any way today, please take a moment right now and rate us wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear from you as well. Leave us a review or reach out to us via LinkedIn. You can find us at Aaron Smith or Benjamin Carsage. And feel free to search for Building Better Games.